Hello and welcome to the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Jesse Hyatt. And I'm Mike Varley. And welcome to our 22nd week. We are covering the Queen's Coast, an area so big it takes two weeks. Oh. Yeah. And this is, yet again, another little tweak on our format for the podcast. We have a guest. They're not here. That's because we sat with them earlier. And previously, we kind of introduce our guests while they're sitting there and having to wait. And we thought maybe we'd try a version where they don't have to kind of awkwardly suspend themselves until we introduce them. So who was our guest? Our guest this week was U2 Ken Woo's Zach Abramson. He is a fantastic composer for video games and an all-around jack-of-all-trades musician that we had the opportunity to sit down with. He's also a Queens Coast local mm-hmm. for 10, well, 11 years in the Astoria section, and we had a chance to sit down with him in Astoria Park. Yeah, it was really nice to talk with him. I'm not going to go too much into it because you should just continue to listen, but you can hear about how he got started in what he's doing now with music and how he transitioned his music career, and we talked about making music for video games and much, much more. Yeah. But it was really interesting and, and fun. Yeah, this is one of those episodes where we focus less on the walk that we happen to do this week and more on the guest who's local to the area. So if you are hungering for some information on what we did this week, there's actually a lot of overlap from one of our earlier walks, which I believe is First Impressions East Queens. Yeah, I think so. We'll put a tag in for that particular podcast in the YouTube page where you can find that. And... Yeah, you can also go back on any of the podcast platforms and look for it. What we're doing uh, is the, I guess, western coast of Long Island, uh, which is like all the Queens coast that abuts up Roosevelt Island and the East River. Mm -hmm. So that is a lot of um, Gantry State Park and Rainy Park and Astoria Park, Socrates Sculpture Garden we visited again. Mm -hmm. We went right by the... LaGuardia Airport. Yeah, that you was. You can't get to the coast there because the airport owns the coast. That's yeah. kind of weird, yeah. but also cool. Yeah. Um, and then we went all the way out to near City Field and along Flushing Bay, which is a different coast. <laughs> yeah, the Flushing Corona Park section that abuts the marina, which we hadn't been to previously. Yeah. And that was kind of the extent of our uh, coastline tour thus far. And then we went inland both times uh, and were, you know, able to see, again, a lot of similar things to what we've seen in previous Queens walks, which is great because we got to see, you know, based on a different season. We were in July last time and now we're going through in November. Yeah, it feels different. I kept saying that when the sun's starting to set, there's like a special light over the water that doesn't really exist at other times of year. And I don't know, Mike doesn't necessarily agree with me, but I'm, I'm set in that idea. I I don't disagree. It's that we're there at a different time and the sun's coming at a different time and the trees are a different color. It's wintery fall. Yeah. The colors are all different. It's really nice. Yeah. The only, I guess, major thing I would say about the area is there's so little residential space. Uh, The residential space that exists in the coastline is either around Long Island City, which is a relatively Mm -hmm. new phenomenon or the houses around the airport, which are kind of interesting. There's a lot of lawn signage about 
preventing an air train from coming into LaGuardia. Yeah, which we should, I think we'll find out more about that so next week because we're actually going to be meeting with someone that is an advocate for people that live in that area. So I think she'll tell us more about that. Yeah. So stay tuned. So that'll be exciting to learn about. But just in general, the idea that if the city had been developed differently as though, you know, there was always a lot of foresight when it comes to Manhattan with the gridded streets and whatnot. But if there was even more foresight, one wonders what it would have been like because that real estate along the, the waterfront now, you know, it maybe wouldn't be all power plants and uh, truck traffic industry and yeah. things like that. But that's a large part of it. Combined with the parks, I mean, they've done a good job of creating, especially again, along the East River uh, areas for people to have leisure. Yeah, the parks are really, really great. And that's actually, I think this is a good transition into the rest of the episode. That is where we met with Zach. And it's one of his favorite parks because he lives in Astoria, uh, maybe 10 blocks from there or so. And yeah, we sat with him for about an hour and a half in said park. And it's lovely. There's uh, two bridges that go across and the Hell's Gate Bridge is really beautiful. It's only a either Metro North or Amtrak, I'm not sure, but it's one of those like long distance trains, not the subway. And it's a beautiful old structure. Very pleasant. That's right. We did a 360 video on that back in May, which we can also link to in the YouTube page. But without further ado, let's start in with Zach. Well, thanks so much for joining us, man. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for uh, having me by on your uh, Queen's excursion. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's so great. Yeah, the uh, it's so funny the circumstances under which like we've been doing this podcast. Now we've almost done like 30 episodes now. It's crazy. And uh, you know, for those listening, watching at home, it was not intended to be the format that you've come to know and love. It was originally intended to be at U2 Camwoo, which is the studio that Zach is a part of. And yeah. uh, I mean, obviously it didn't work out because of COVID, but uh, we really appreciate you and, and everybody over there, their, the willingness to, you know, to go along with our idea. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would have been fun at the studio, but I think what you have done with these location interviews has been equally awesome. Um, and it's nice they have all these different uh, the, the studio is nice and like your home setup is really nice, but it's also great to incorporate all these different perspectives in I think too just for a change like literal change of scenery. Yeah. Yeah, I think it worked out nice and like hopefully the weather like hopefully we'll have another global warming winter and uh, <laughs> The weather won't get too rough um, we, for, yeah. the next, for the next few months. We were just talking about that the other day Like what are we gonna do when it gets cold? Maybe it'll be like last year and it just won't. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Like, this was a cold day last winter, like 55, you know? I mean, I think maybe it got a little colder than that. No, yeah. you're right, though. Because we last year, we knew we were going to do this, even though we hadn't started it. We hadn't told anyone yet. Yeah. And starting in November, I think all the way through till February, like, I would text Mike almost every day and be like, we should have started earlier. Yeah. We should have done it this year. It's so nice out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll yeah. see what happens. This was the nicest day this week of our of our walk so felt very fortunate to be able to uh have planned this as the day not have to screw around with the schedule too much it was legitimately cold on wednesday that's for sure it yeah was, i don't know how how did you all do with like actually under freezing for a little bit of the day was that me i wasn't there with you that day tuesday and tuesday was cold too but wednesday was colder and you were alone wednesday was <laughs> 
Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was not raining, so that helps tremendously. Yeah. I think the coldest day we've had so far was a few weeks back when it rained all day and we hadn't really taken our rain gear situation to the next tier. Yeah, uh, that so was really rough. We came home and like couldn't use our arms properly. It was like a re real weird, not, not hypothermia, like, but just like. We didn't have gloves yet that were waterproof. So really quickly your hands just get wet. Yeah. And in the summer that was fine because it was warm. But then, yeah, when now that it's getting cold in the rain, our hands would get wet and then I guess they kind of like freeze up real quick. And it's like the end of the circulation anyway. So they're just, they're, they're sensitive. So now we do, now we have gloves and we have thicker rain gear and we have like a better understanding of what to wear under it. Yeah. But yeah. Like, you don't learn without testing. Yeah, gloves, yeah. gloves are one of those, I feel like everybody has gloves, but they don't, no, I don't think New Yorkers really have thought through their glove choices. Yeah. It's like, the, it's mostly a style consideration and they do like the bare minimum of like keeping your hands warm on yeah. your walk from the train to wherever you're going, etc. But I've been thinking about it a lot because I want gloves that are warm, like down to below freezing, that also are dexterous and grippy enough to hold a beer. Ooh, oh, nice. And I've narrowed, I, there's a set of Arcteryx gloves that I'm thinking about getting, but I don't know, you, you what did you all end up getting? So We uh, still need to work on it. Yeah. Because we have, I don't know if you're familiar, I think we've told you about it, or maybe you've seen, we have a pretty, like, important list of where we get our clothes from and yeah. what we're wearing and what we're buying. Yeah. The gloves, because it was like, oh, we need this tomorrow. Like these, I can't move my fingers and it's gonna rain again tomorrow. Yeah. We did Amazon buys nice. and they're not, <laughs> yeah, they're like, they, I mean, they worked. The gloves I got are completely waterproof and they're warm, but they were like, I think $15 on Amazon and yeah. they came the next day and I don't feel good about that. Uh, but I am going to tell, you know, I'm gonna be honest about it. <laughs> we, I mean, we have, a, we have a tier which is known as functional necessity within yeah. our clothing, and at presently that's where it falls in. Yeah. Now, we've done some research, and honestly, we, it's, it's disappointing that there aren't a lot of American-made options, and the ones that are American-made are typically like work gloves and things like that. Yeah. We found some that were assembled in the U.S., but uh, we've brought it up before. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. You could put the tag on. Uh, and that's assembled. Yeah. Uh, similarly with design, that doesn't mean anything, you know, mm. so. But we also haven't done a ton of research into it. We're gonna so keep we're, trying. We're gonna keep trying as it gets cold. Nice. But as for but, this particular Wednesday, Jesse was actually, uh, she wasn't walking with me that day. Uh, yeah. She had, uh, she was giving a lecture, so to speak, or she was talking to a college class. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And as she was doing that, she was doing it on Zoom, obviously, because it's the one we live my, in. That was yeah. my, like, one recent professional She, she closed thing. the door, and it's like, okay. And then I realized my gloves were in that room. Oh, no. And I was not going to wait a half hour to pick up the gloves. Yeah. So I was walking around. I, like, was looking for thrift stores. There weren't thrift stores available. I went, uh, there was a dollar store, and they had those, uh, the, you know those very thin gloves, basically, which I actually like the, they are super dexterous, you know, or dexterous. Dexterous. Yeah, I don't even know that's the right word, yeah. but. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but nothing. They're super dexterous. They are maybe not the most quality in terms of like um, uh, how long they're going to hold up. Yeah. Uh, but I went to the store and then uh, it was $10 and I was like, okay, that seems a little, 
a little cheap for like what I'm gonna give, but whatever, that's fine. Uh, and then I gave her the money and she was like, oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's $1. And, uh, and uh, I mean, look, the gloves, I, they were definitely functional necessity for that day. I would have been in real trouble without it um, uh, being, you know, there. But the, the fact that they're $1 is like super troubling and what we're kind of talking about where it's like, yeah. how does that even, like they're made in China, it, it must cost like 90 cents to fly it over. I don't, I don't understand how that's working. Yeah. I you have know? a theory on it that because so many things are made in China, it's not like the company might not be making any money, but like the country of China might just be like, make it, make it like what people will buy because it's the cheapest. And yeah. then we will own production of everything. And maybe that, I don't know how like, crazy yeah. that sounds but I kind of think it makes sense if it's just like well if we're always undercutting everything then like all production will just happen here and maybe there's you know maybe a bigger company just like makes gloves for nothing because they can make money on shirts or something like that possibly I mean it's it really it makes me think that just a lot of negative things and like things where it's like you know, the, the perception that I have of the Chinese government is based on news stories, is that it is willing to grind people into dust in the name of progress for the government. That's my, my current operating understanding. And we are enabling that by purchasing these products. And I, it seems like it could be a two birds, one stone situation if we start trying to make these things in our country and employ people that are currently in jobs that are becoming fast outmoded, you know? But it, to do that, we have to tell people that, yeah, these gloves are gonna be $5 or $6 or $7, not a dollar. Uh, and I don't know, it's just hard. I think it's hard for a lot of people to make that jump where it's like, no, but I want it for a dollar. And it's like, yeah, but you're destroying people's lives and maybe even your own country if you care yeah. about it, you know? Getting back into the idea of um, the uh, what do you like um, repair your broken gloves instead of buying a new one mm -hmm. um, I, I I'm the worst I'll throw stuff out like yeah yeah the smallest thing is messed up with it it's like ah, I'll just buy a new one yeah. really it's the worst it's like the worst mentality and it's because it's it's because um, I don't know I just it's easier to buy something new yeah. now than it is to get something fixed it takes longer to get something fixed than to get something delivered on Amazon and you could go to a dollar store and get a pair of gloves for a dollar. Yep. It's true. But Even for me that I have a sewing machine and I have all the skills yeah. obviously to fix like pretty much everything. Yeah. I I do fix my things, but like they'll sit and wait and wait and wait because yeah. it is easier to just like boop boop boop. We have a backlog right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's uh, one of the shirts on, from the fall, to, yeah, the, something. yeah. The poncho, things like that. But yeah, I mean that's I would be in the same boat as you with clothes if I didn't live with Jesse and I am in the same boat as you with other things it's yeah. you know it, it's not about trying to be the best version for every single possible thing you know right now we're just kind of think about thinking about it philosophically like let's just tackle one or two things and hopefully yeah. it'll like bleed into some of our other subconscious decisions as well I think that's it's absolutely true um, just about it just choose some part of your life that you can have that mentality especially with things that have like resale value and I know some clothes do have quite a lot of resale value yeah. musical instruments have tons of resale value right. um, uh, recording hardware 
can go up in price as well if it's like a coveted piece of gear and knowing how to repair those or having people trusted people that you can get those repaired i think is kind of an equivalent thing or it's like yeah I don't, i'm not going to get a new guitar or something like that i'm going to like repair this guitar i have so much respect for my friends who can do that kind of work you know yeah because it's they're, they're uh, adding value to all their stuff and I, I guess this is also true with clothes for me at least i have like articles of clothing that have passed a threshold mm-hmm. at which I would be generally upset if I had to throw it out because I like it so much right. it's like been a part of my life for so long that like I am going to put the shoulder pads on this shirt or yeah. like right. yeah. I am going to repair this jacket or like the the rip in these pants or mm-hmm. something like that um, and yeah I, I don't know I, I feel like that's always like a good it would be nice if all your clothes are kind of like that I mean maybe back in the day they were like if like yeah. you only had like the one shirt or something it's like you probably really enjoyed that shirt totally know, part well, of your life yeah I mean I could I could talk about this like all day yeah. but but yeah I think back in the day too like we didn't have like polyester and we didn't have like jersey and we didn't have this stuff that's just like kind of shittily made and like falls apart real quick like you would have a really nice like denim that would last forever not like the denim that we have now that has half plastic and just like shrivels by the end of one season yeah um but i you you mentioned quality music things too and if i can circle us back to when we were going to pod when we were going to podcast with you when we were going to record at you two can woo and you brought out these amazing microphones that yeah. I feel like are are similar to what this concept that we're talking about. Yes. They seemed like so special. Microphones are a very interesting part of music gear because the they don't you have to break them. They don't break on their own. Like you have to drop them and stuff for mm. them to break um, or plug them in improperly or something like that. But normal wear and tear, a well-made microphone doesn't necessarily like wear it out. Um, so if you make it's the kind of investment that you could have a mic. There are functional mics from the 40s mm. that are still in use today because people took care of them. They didn't plug them in wrong. They didn't drop them. They put them back in their cases with mm-hmm. their proper cloth coverings so the dust didn't get in them. Um, and yeah, those microphones are not from the 40s, but they're using parts that were from that time period. And they're they are they go up in value the guy who made those microphones doesn't make them anymore so they've gone up in value since they were made um and they were actually on loan to us by a friend of ours who has since taken them back oh, but no. it's okay because we got new ones that are almost as good uh, we, we we made an investment and got some new ones so um we are really uh we're really feeling good about our new microphones and i hope that we never have to buy i you know we'll keep them for as long as we're making music and we will uh, give them to someone who needs them at the end of their time with us or we'll sell them at uh at, for a great price yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll what see. are these new microphones is it uh, you, something people might know or i mean you? well the the main the replacement for to get super technical yeah. the the microphones that you, we had set up for you were um, based on the Neumann U47, which is an old classic microphone that Neumann stopped making a while ago and has, I believe, since started making again, maybe. I don't even know. But this dude in Germany, Gunther Wagner, mm-hmm. was using parts from that time period and remaking the microphones, but actually with like lower noise and like a better signal to noise ratio and like better 
components in some of the line, the signal chain, and that's what we had. These mics were incredible, and they were um, serial numbers 191 and 192. They were like made right one after the other. I think right. they were made especially um, to order. Uh, and the mic we got now is a similar, is using the same concepts. I don't think they're using the actual parts mm. from that time period, but um, the company is called Flea, and I think they're based out of California, but I'm not. I don't know if that's true, actually. So yeah. let me edit that part. But. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I don't know where they're based out of or fact check it. But yeah, but yeah. They, the mic is awesome. It sounds really good. Nice. Um, so feeling really good about that. Is there like a, a actual aesthetic appreciation or is it more just like, uh, like just invisibility that's prized in terms of like having different microphones? Like, do you want to be able to say, oh, it's that type of microphone or is it just like, it's like nothing at all? It's two things. Two things. One is it means something regardless to a client who comes in or a recording artist. Um, who is a client, you know what I mean? Anybody that walks into the studio that knows microphones, to see a microphone of that level, of that quality level and that historical um, the microphone, with that recording precedent, yeah. um, just as a brand, as a, as a model, um, means something. It means that you are able to capture sound um, as part of like a historical continuum of like what it means to be a quality recording studio. Yeah. The mic in the abstract, in and of itself, every mic sounds a little different and there's actually a humongous difference in the sound quality depending on the source mm. depending on what mic you use so those microphones if you are like frank sinatra or something like that there is no better microphone for picking up that kind of voice mm. than that neumann u47 i would say i mean or that's the whether or not there's a better or worse mic or whatever it, that's the historical context because mm. i believe that's what they used at that in the 40s and stuff on Sinatra. Yeah. Um, and but that's it. Also sounds really good on Deidre, the you know my business yeah. partner at the studio. Yeah. When she's doing like a jazzier kind of lower voice, um, like lower in her range, her like smoky mm. range, as mm -hmm. her husband and our business partner David calls it. Um, that mic sounds awesome. But when she's doing some of her lighter, she also has like this French pop sound, and she's doing the lighter stuff. And I might use a completely different mic mm. for, for that. Yeah. Um, that has like a kind of like a breathier that picks up the breathier quality of her voice, and it's interesting because it's just mechanics, and you should be able to just emulate it. You should be able to just and there are now microphone like modeling microphones that you turn on the U forty seven setting on the mic and it sounds kind of like U forty seven. Yeah, but it's not all the way there. Mm. And just like of any industry, of course. you can get there. You can get to ninety eight percent. For not that much money, but to get that next two percentage points to get to 100, that's where the value is. That's the difference between a mic that will lose value as soon as they come out with a better model, right? Better like modeling technology. Yeah. You know that you know that mic will become obsolete, and then but the mic that is trying to emulate will never become obsolete. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting situation with microphones. There's so much detail in these little things that are just mechanical. Yeah. And um, and how they react to certain sound levels. Like, the louder it is, the mic is going to change the way it works. Yeah. Like that. So yeah. There's a lot of different little nuances to the whole thing. But and the, and audio, I think, in particular, is maybe the number one culprit when it comes to that rule of, like, the 98%, that extra, 
you know, the imposter versus the real article. Yeah. It, it, something about audio, you can, especially if you're in that business, I feel like it, you can just pick up the difference in a way that you can't with a lot of other things, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think film stock would be an analogy for mm. like people that shoot on digital and then like make it look like film. Yeah. Um, even if they're using the proper lighting and all that stuff. I, I would imagine that directors and cinematographers say that shooting on actual film is always better, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't have much experience in that world, so I don't know offhand. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Music is always at the forefront of the intersection of art and technology, and film is too. But like, music really has been for the last 100 years, like right at the cusp. But even before that, with the technology of building instruments, it's always like right there um, right. like one of the first things that you do with new technology is like use it in, in music yeah um, and so there's always been these fun like uh, moments where you're you're right on that like bleeding edge of of that 98 percent where it's like oh if I had this one thing right or this thing that's been so valuable in the past if I had that one thing from the 1940s or something like that yeah it's yeah. interesting like then I don't think that's necessarily true in other art forms in the same way. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we, we keep mentioning and passing the concept of U2 Kenwu, the studio yeah. of which you are invested. <laughs> uh, and I mean, there are so many uh, things that I would talk about. I mean, sure. obviously, you know that uh, both of us admire U2 Kenwu. We think you're, you're a fantastic studio. And, you know, to be New York based is so awesome. We're very uh, proud of that. And uh, I don't know if this requires a disclosure, but Zach and I used to work together when I worked at Avalanche, so that's part of how uh, we came to know each other. Yeah. Um, you know, with one thing that is curious to me, you know, you know, small, middle-sized business uh, uh, making it work. You talk about the idea of having, you know, microphones that suggest to somebody that is in the know that you are also in the know. You know, how much when you're operating your business uh does that come up as part of the conversation for planning you know the idea of making sure that you're representing as uh as an authority as a, as a, a source of knowledge in a very competitive industry i think that's like um a really interesting part of our business that we we actually think about quite a lot mm -hmm. is um when you walk into our space, like what does it feel like to be in our space? And what does that mean to different types of the people that might come into our space? Um, and when you're talking about a musician that would come into our space, having uh, the, the feeling of joy of having like being surrounded by all these fun things that you mm -hmm. can make music with, I think is really important. So like in our edit room, we have like, bunch of synthesizers and they're like sorry <laughs> they're really um, you know they're they're really good synthesizers they're not the sense that you would expect either so it's like a quirky second take mm. on on what synthesizers you would see in a studio okay. um, and then the microphones as we've already talked about and if you're a recording engineer and guitars and things like that if you're a recording engineer and you walk in we want you to be um, like well like to think of the possibilities of all this gear mm -hmm. like we have this mixing board and we have the, this gear that you can use that honestly a lot of the time is like maybe not the best idea to use it because it adds a lot of like 
work right. to get that stuff into the signal chain. Right. Um, but like it's there if you want to use it, and it, right. it like triggers that moment. You're like, oh man, I could run this through this piece of gear and then back into that piece of gear. It's like, oh, this would be so great. We could work here. We could do this. Um, and right now, as we speak, actually, we are re we are rebuilding the connectivity between all the rooms mm. to further allow musicians and recording engineers to like do something really interesting and cool um, and collaborate. Um, that's another big word is the idea of collaborating. Collaboration in our space is super important. So it's like we can right now, we can get audio signals from one room into another room and we can get it into, so there's three rooms. Mm -hmm. One of the rooms can go to one of the rooms pretty easily and then back pretty easily not not great but okay it can go kind of into one room into the other into the third room okay. and then not back really at all <laughs> so it, and it gets very complicated it's like well we want to be able to send signal from any room to any room and record it right and perform it or record it in any room and so we're we're as we speak now um my co-workers are uh working on a new plan to do all that stuff oh, nice. um, so that's gonna be really exciting and then the third part of this whole thing is, well, what if you're not a musician or a recording engineer? What if you are part of the industry as a decision maker, as a tastemaker, as a, as a director, as a producer, as a video game producer? Like, what does that feel like to walk into our space? And that might not have anything to do with specific pieces of gear. It might have to do with like the general sense of gear, yeah. but the general sense of musical instruments around. But focusing on making sure that when you walk in you feel like you're in a creative space that feels focused and feels clean and feels uh, nice to be in mm -hmm. so our aesthetic as you have seen um, when you've been by is sort of like mid-century living room mm -hmm. I guess yeah. um, and the idea that yeah when you walk into a living room you should feel comfortable you should have a comfortable seat uh, it should have nice light like we're the only studio I know of in New York City that has like that amount of natural light that's also on the first floor. Yeah. Um, most studios are either in basements or like dungeon style <laughs> studios in basements or they're on, in the penthouse. Mm -hmm. The penthouse is nice, it's just you gotta go all the way up to the penthouse right. to, uh, to get there and they're generally in Manhattan which is set, has its own set of problems in terms of the cost of running the studio and things mm -hmm. like that. So, um, and for me personally, I, I come from like a very like purely music background and I never thought about any of the client services part of being like I thought a lot about the working with artists part of this whole thing and knowing what it means to have like stuff around that aids the creative process mm -hmm. but the client services aspect of the whole thing was new to me um, and you know I learned a lot from my business partners at YouTube Kungu about all that stuff yeah. and um, you know back to the New York part of that it's it's interesting in New York as well because uh, in LA a lot of people's studios are like in their house or mm. they're on like a lot maybe um, they have space there's more space right and then New York is like I mean I don't need to tell you all like it's <laughs> not very much space yeah so like the other part of this whole thing is like how do you become efficient with your use of space and your your use of uh, personnel to make sure that you know all that collaboration and all those things can happen in a way that like is efficient for everyone involved it is another huge part of our space yeah i think i may not have answered your question actually. no i think you did <laughs> no you did pretty well and in fact uh, i think so well to the capacity that you're saying 
it wasn't something that you've thought about previously coming to Utukemu, and yet it seems like you had a pretty strong sense of what the beats were, which suggests to me, and this would be my kind of follow-up question, is, yeah. is, is this written down? Are there people that are like kind of plotting this out, or is it something that happened organically and you're just kind of rattling it off? We have, we have many documents about but that go into like hyper specifics yeah. of client services and things yeah. like that. Um, and gear purchases and spreadsheets about what gear we're going to get uh, over the next few months and things like that to aid in uh, our refresh of our studio's mm. um, connectivity, as I was just talking about. As well as we just did, a, we have a lot of documents about a refresh of the interior design that right. we just did. Yeah. The studio was originally built, this is again like way outside of my range. Um, <laughs> but I work with people who have a very high-functioning aesthetic, is what I always say. So right. the aesthetic of the space used to be with all this red velvet and white, mm -hmm. and it was modeled after the TWA airport, that super ultra-mod yeah. look. And when the TWA hotel opened, we all went and we were like, wow, it's back, it's all here, this yeah. is crazy. I had never actually been to that airport, so I, I had only seen it in pictures. Yeah. Um, but it was cool. It was really cool. There was red velvet stuff everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, the hotel was um, just beautiful. And we, we all got back from that and we're like, all right, well, now we probably need to do something different <laughs> in the studio because it's time to move. Because it's back. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what exactly what they're going for right now. It kind of feels like Miami 1972. Mm -hmm. So okay. a lot of like coral and like pastels. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it looks pretty awesome. Nice. But there's like a, some starch colors and things mm. like that which I think is nice and it's a little brighter it's not the dark red velvet mm -hmm. it was cool but it it did kind of get a little dark in there so everything feels a little brighter now right um, so uh, that's 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 also been well documented I think for me um, I come from a collaborative background so yeah. with playing in bands and working in theater and working in film video games are extremely collaborative as you know um, so the idea of working with people, even though I had never thought about it, it did, it did resonate pretty quickly because I have worked with people and I understand mm. the idea of like, we have to meet somewhere halfway in terms of our mentality. And if I can make this space a comfortable place for everyone, not just musicians, but also all sorts of people that walk in, if I can help aid in that, um, you know, that would be, that's totally a good idea, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that it it was never written it was never written down um, at like the start of our business. Although it is part of our business plan to have like a welcoming environment and be like a collaborative mm. hub, like all oh, that's all actually in our business plan. Yeah. But um, but it was assumed. I mean, I remember the first time I walked into the studio before I was um, before we had created our business partnership. Um, the studio was open for a few years before that. And I remember walking in the first time, I was like, man, this is nice. This is yeah. like the nicest music. Like most music studios are not like this kind of niceness. And, yeah. Or they're nice in a different way. Yeah. Um, this is nice. Like I'm walking into a, like I'm walking into like the best living room, like this, this really nice place that I would like to spend more time in. And, yeah. Um, so it was like assumed when we started the partnership that we would continue down that road. And, um, you know, I was definitely called out for, uh, I, you know, like leaving a trail of garbage behind me wherever I go, like literally. Uh, so, you know, I was called out for that a few times. And, yeah. 
spilled some coffee a few times uh, that was not great. But, <laughs> you know, started. I actually like started trying to dress nice. Uh, er, yeah. not yeah. as nice as you all do, but like you know, <laughs> dressing way nicer. I mean, I used to. I mean, you know, pretty. I don't know. It, it's, I still don't think I dress nice, but I, I think that I made it, I made an improvement. Yeah. But, um, and then my, I didn't have a big beard. Um, I had tried to do this a few times before in my life, and it yeah. always, uh, for lack of a better word, like got rabbinical. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I didn't quite have it worked out. And David was looking at a. I used to play in a band with. I still play in Deidre's band. Yeah. Um, Deidre's band used to play more regularly. I used to play in that band. Um, on keyboards and I guess there's a picture of me playing keyboards and I had this beard at the time I had a big beard and yeah. my coworkers David Dietrich like you look so cool with this beard you should grow the beard out it's like oh, I don't know it always goes this way it's a whole thing and David got me a beard kit for like uh, for a Christmas present one year oh. Oh. and it totally works it's like yeah you put this beard goop in it and you brush it and comb it and stuff and use the scissors to cut it and yeah. it actually is like a manageable thing yeah. so nice you know, I think that was a part of my um, part of my uh, you know, building out an identity at the studio. It's like, well, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm the guy with the beard. It's like, why don't I? I'm like, David's got the crazy sideburns. Right. Derek's got this like mullet thing happening yeah. now. Right. It's like, all right, I'm the beard guy, so why not go all the way? <laughs> that's great. Well, I mean, that speaks to I think a really effective, functioning, uh, loving community. You know, high functioning yeah. aesthetic, yeah. and yeah, uh, a community of, of very good friends who care about each other and want each other to succeed. Yeah. That's the yeah. other important thing to remember about the studio is we're we're not unique, but we are, we're a group of people who have worked together in various capacities for a very long time, and some of us are related. You know, there's um, you know brother and sister and some of them are married we have the sisters married to the husband and um so it's a whole crew of people that have been working together for a very very long time and we trust there's a lot of trust um uh that has accrued you know uh for me i've known these folks for 20 years and so over those 20 years i've gotten to trust them like as much as you know i trust my best friends and family and um and I would hope that this is the same about me, but um, it would be very difficult to have a business like this if you didn't have that accrued trust because um, it's very difficult to run a small business in the arts where everybody's kind of working towards mm. their own goals together um, if you don't have that worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah, all those, all those elements I definitely noticed as soon as I walked into your space for the first time too. I mean, I had obviously been, you know, next to you for a couple of years and yeah. knowing that there was a music studio there and occasionally I'd see you like come outside and the beard guy and yeah. <laughs> occasionally I'd see the, you know, the guy that looks like he's from the seventies with the sideburns <laughs> and I'm like, they look cool. You know, there's some cool people next door. But also just in my head assumed it was the music studio that you're talking about, like dark, maybe concrete, maybe yeah. like music, you know, stuff around and... It's like, yeah, Chinese uh, Chinese food containers. Right, and <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But then when, we, when I finally actually came into your studio, it was, it was like warm and welcoming and everyone, like you all look so cool, but there's not this weird pretentious behavior. Like everyone's so warm and welcoming and... It's just, it's a really good vibe that you guys have created. And even as a non-musician, I feel like, I feel like I could come in and make music. 
I don't know what I'd make, but (laughs) I don't know if you guys would want me to do that ever. But like it does even, yeah, even as someone that like doesn't know how to use any of the equipment you have in there, it's inspiring. And it it gives you those feelings of like, ooh, anything could happen here. Well, I truly appreciate you saying that because that's exactly the, the goal is to be an inspiring community hub and um and hopefully without any pretense um about you know uh music or brooklyn or any of those things um this can be it can be uh that can be kind of overwhelming in brooklyn there's like um you know we came up in brooklyn uh, i've never lived in brooklyn but you know the, the studios in brooklyn and my being a musician in new york like brooklyn is a part like williamsburg is a part of my 20s as a musician Mm -hmm. you know of playing there a lot and you know there's so much history there and i think it's like yeah we're not trying to relive uh the that experience of like being in your 20s and being in williamsburg and Mm -hmm. even though the studio is right in the center of where all that was happening at that time it's more of like you know i think we're thinking of it as like a happy like a positive place a happy place where we're moving we're using that as part of like a larger idea that's like a moving forward out of that and not being caught up in like any of the pretense of of that of that world yeah not to say that that world is pretentious but just saying that like it can (laughs) become pretentious if you are like living in that you know if you're stuck in 2007 or something like that right (laughs) Um, which i don't feel like we are yeah Uh, i hope we're not (laughs) no yeah i think it's very successful and and unique and surprising and feels very like honest and i mean that's why we wanted to do the podcast there with you guys because it's like it just feels good and it feels like there there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration and like human at like a human level that's awesome yeah. that's that's exactly what we're we're hoping for is that human human collaboration yeah human human so you principally as to, to my understanding uh do composition for youtube camu and and more specifically at least mostly for video games yeah and how many, I mean, was JC3, Just Cause 3, the first project that you worked on? Yes. yes so that's six, six years now or so, I guess? Yeah, the first notes of music I wrote for Just Cause 3 were in June 2012. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. So you were, all right, so then eight years, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, so it was a really incredible process with yeah. Just Cause 3 and being part of, um, being part of your studio at that time um, for me was really something yeah um i uh was asked so if i was if you had asked me 10 years ago if what i thought about video game composition i would be like i mean i love video games i would say my love for video games games uh, supersedes my ability to play them right. which is an issue for me that like i'm just not very good at video games i would like to be better at them but, right like I find even with uh, all the practicing that I can do, like I just don't have whatever that, I missed like a critical thing. Right. I think it was Mario 64. I think I didn't have N64. I grew up with Nintendo. Yeah. I had Genesis. Um, but I ne- when N64 came out, I kind of like doubled down on Nintendo and mm. I actually started buying a lot of like, Nintendo games at that time were like 14 cents yeah. at Funko Land. So yeah. I would go to Funko Land and I'd just buy a ton of like NES games yeah. and just play those. <laughs> yeah. um, but I never, so like my spatial yeah the third dimension awareness mm. I just and I remember the first time I played through JC two while I was trying to play JC three which is the first time I played any yeah. new video game at that time I was like aware of them but I didn't have an Xbox three sixty I played some Mario Kart and GameCube never played Halo none of that um, never played any first person shooters 
first time I was playing Just Cause 2 and trying to get the grapple hook parachute thing, I was like, and I used to make fun of my mom when she was playing Mario Brothers because when she would jump, she would do this. <laughs> That's what I do too. And I was playing Just Cause 2 and I'm staring at the screen like this. I was like moving around and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't even actually get my body to stay still. I'm so bad at the specializing yeah. of yeah. this game. I have gotten better. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I'm still not good. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long <laughs> way of saying in 2010, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, that's an interesting idea. I love video games, but I did never occur to me. And I had been working in theater and film. I've been working in, I came up doing classical music. I went to school for classical music. Um, and I wrote a lot of songs at the end of that time, but I'd also written for orchestra and things like that. The songs kind of led me into this theater world. I also at the time was dating somebody in musical theater, so I had like a connection to that world. So I briefly was doing musical theater. I also had a connection to the film world and was doing like narrative film. Um, and through that, got to meet people like um, the audio director at uh, Avalanche, um, New York, Jason, who asked me to demo on Just Cause 2. Yeah. And uh, sorry, Just Cause 3. Yeah. And that was um, that was the start of my experience with video games. And, um, you know, I ended up contributing some music to Just Cause 3 and then asked to demo again for Just Cause 4, which I thankfully um, was able to get. And that was like one of the best experiences of my life as a composer was getting to write all this music. Um, and people seemed to like were pushing me to write the stuff that I wanted to be writing. Like there was an alignment of my creative voice in the first time in a long time with um, an outside project. And uh, and that has then carried on into Second Extinction and projects after that. So it's, yeah. been, it's been awesome being part of video games. Yeah. And um, the thing that clicked for me with video games was it's a combination of all these different um, practices in music that I like that I have been doing and I kind of had never figured out where things landed for me like there's so many different things I was doing and I didn't know exactly where um, I fit into all those things and it like I had my classical background um, so I knew how to write for orchestra and love writing for orchestra I love writing chamber music I love those instruments I love Western European instruments um, I love the idea of being technically good at your instrument. I think mm. that's cool. Yeah. Um, but at the same time as I was in school for that, I was also playing in all these jam bands and funk bands and like really enjoyed music that was like directly visceral. That mm. like you didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to sit there and enjoy it. It was like in you and through you. And you know, the people on stage were kind of like in communion with people in the audience. And there's this whole like energy thing happening that doesn't happen in classical music. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I've always loved like storytelling from film and uh, the idea of narrative uh, and theater, obviously, as well with the narrative stuff. And all those things kind of come together in video games where you have, you're using the instrumentation you want to use, like, and a lot of it draws from the cinematic orchestral heritage, um, or at least a lot of like AAA games do. And then at the same time, you're uh, incorporating storytelling and dramatic stuff. Um, and at the same time as that, you're doing all this non-linear thinking about music, which comes to me through the jam and funk band world, mm. where we're on stage looping something. Right. Until somebody, you know, the lead singer is basically the audio engine, where he's like, 
or she in some cases uh, I was in bands you know it doesn't matter who the lead singer is but like whoever it is is uh, is, tr- is getting information from the audience they're getting information from the band and is triggering the next section of music at mm. the time when it's supposed to happen yeah. based on that energy which is kind of like the same thing that uh, the audio engine in a video game is doing so it's it's um, that sort of like clicked for me in a way that was like a really fun like brain thing it was just like man like we can do all these all these non-linear things along with the classical heritage the theater heritage the film heritage the storytelling all those things can kind of come together in one space and that was really really fun um, yeah. for video games so yeah. I, I look forward to continuing to write more video game scores as we go and it's cool being in New York where the video game scene is not huge but is growing and Avalanche is, is doing cool stuff and yeah. um, more people are moving in. So. Yeah. Yeah. What is the, so obviously Mike you know, I actually don't know, what is the project that you're working on right now for with Avalanche? Sorry. Second Extinction just yeah. was just launched in Early Access which mm-hmm. is uh, a very cool, I didn't know anything about Early Access um, before this, but it's really an interesting idea of having the community be part of your beta testing, I suppose, um, where everybody has a understanding that there's going to be bugs and we'll we'll get we'll get through the bugs together and like make a better <laughs> game together and okay. like we'll give you a discount on the game basically in order for you to help us like find these bugs. Oh, cool! Um, and you know the game is that's not all that early access is about. It's also just like less game. So it's like they're trying to tone in on what's working before they expand the game out and stuff gotcha. like that. So it was cool being part of like a shorter timeline of a process. My, my timeline on Second Extinction was about six months uh, compared to 18 months on Just Cause 4. Okay. And actually longer on Just Cause 3, even though I wasn't like involved for the entirety of that mm-hmm. process, but like start to finish on Just Cause 3 was like three years. Oh, 2012. wow. 2012. First note, June 2012. The last note, July 2015. Yeah. Okay. So, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a long, long project. That was a long one. But um, so six months was like, it, it was very different um, because we kind of just like, we, we spent some time generating ideas and then we're like, okay, let's go. And then let's stop. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's cool seeing like a very small little part of a game that could be expanded over time into something really big and huge and um, it's it's fun it's like a game it, like Just Cause 4 is a game like yeah. that's like it's very gamey but not Second Extinction is like it's just you just running around shooting mutant dinosaurs it's oh. real yeah. it's just really fun and, and you know, I, I like I don't know I use like I just I describe my own music often as loud and dumb <laughs> and I think it works really well for Second Extinction. It's just like, we're going to shoot these dinosaurs, and it's going to be super fun and goofy, and that's what it's going to be. Nice. And not much else. Yeah. Is um, there a trailer or something that has your music in it that we can yeah, look the, at and then put somewhere? The, the very first launch trailer mm-hmm. um, uses actual music from the game. Oh, cool. Which was amazing um, that they did that. The subsequent uh, trailers, they ended up um, getting custom music for the trailers, which sure. it is what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I understand why they did it. Um, and um, it can go really bad, I think, when, when you misrepresent your game in the advertising. Yeah. But um, the, they did a good job of choosing music for this, 
for these ads that even though it wasn't mine, it did feel like it represented the game in a more um, in a in a in a truthful way, which I thought was great. Nice. Yeah. What was either the direction you received or that you did on your own accord in order to get yourself in the headspace? Like, was it a Jurassic Park binge or playing Turok, <laughs> Dinosaur Hunter, or so, like, where'd you go? Yeah, Turok was, so everybody was like, every, I think everybody was a little um, upset when they found out that it wasn't like a Turok reboot. Right. Uh, <laughs> but obviously Turok, um, Turok was on everyone's mind. Um, and the music for Turok is really cool. It's like this, the first one, the very first Turok has these like cool tribal drum kind of vibes, but they're in this like N64 synthy filter that just, it's like, it's very refreshing sounding. Like I think if you were to do it just a tribal drums thing now, it would be like a really generic thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but the sound of like the digitally drums from that soundtrack just sound really cool. Um, so yeah, dinosaurs, um, <laughs> there's like there's an interesting historical context of dinosaurs so you think about dinosaurs as like primi primitive primal um, like big uh, you know like there's not a lot of dimensionality to a dinosaur in the way we think of them it's like it's just like this like unstoppable force or something like that um, and then there's this historical kind of ancillary association with how dinosaurs have already been portrayed in the time that we've been portraying dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So if you think about dinosaurs just in the abstract, it's like, well, the tribal, the primal drums or the, you know, those kinds of things, um, like that does make sense. That just be something that's like pre-music. Mm -hmm. um, but um, an even stronger association to me is the fact that dinosaurs have been associated with like, like modernist, like Stravinsky. Um, Stravinsky primitivism, excuse me, oh. like pre, pre-modernist Stravinsky. Huh. So, and it comes from Fantasia. So, oh. um, the, the first Fantasia has the dinosaur sequence in it where like the end of the dinosaurs and it's Stravinsky Rite of Spring. Mm. And that's, um, an example of primitivism in orchestral music. There was like very famously riots during the, the premiere of Rite of Spring. Oh, right. And uh, the choreography was all like the dancers never left the stage. So it's mm. like this very um, subversive choreography where there's no ballet moves. Everybody's just like lumbering around and stuff like that. I would, I've never seen it. Uh, I've never seen that choreography of it, but I would love to, to see it at some point. But it was used for this, this association through Disney of like, oh, primitivism, dinosaurs, those would be fun. And then it's been there the whole time. Mm. With this. So like if you listen to the John Williams Jurassic Park soundtrack, he's referencing Stravinsky all over the place. So that was a huge uh, starting point for what we did for Second Extinction. It was like, well, let's get into some more of these kind of like Stravinsky-isms in terms of the, that, that period of his output and like what he was doing. And then also the other films that have referenced that that are also part of our collective unconscious in terms of these associations, like Planet of the Apes. Mm. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes is like a, also referencing Stravinsky a lot for the same exact reasons that Fantasia did mm. for dinosaurs, mm -hmm. um, but then he's Goldsmith's combining it with like at the time this technology, so it's like retro future right. in a way. And Second Extinction is actually kind of retro futuristic, not really, but it's not high tech future. It's like everyone's mm. gun is rusty, like they don't <laughs> want to be there. Right. Like they're like it's it's like it's not a nice place. It's not that kind of future. It's mm. like a dark future where people are on these like 
you know, worn out spaceship, space stations orbiting the Earth and they have to go down to the planet to get supplies because they're out of supplies and like there's all these dinosaurs trying to kill them. Oh my gosh. Like, it's like they have to like repair all these ships that broke on the way down and they, like, they need to get back up and there's like people trapped inside. Um, so there's like a little bit of this like rusty future thing mm -hmm. going on there too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so Goldsmith played into that as well. And then there's some, some, some other like, like just like the idea of, of like a menace that's just like there's no it's not a there's no redemption of the dinosaurs or at least not in this early access of the game I don't know what they're planning for like later um, expansions of the game or anything like that yeah. when it comes to Xbox and things but there's no like three dimensional there's no Darth Vader redemption of this enemy you know what I mean they're just like these evil dinosaurs and you gotta shoot them so right. it's like what it, like how what are the other examples of that in and like getting into that kind of stuff and you know they never they didn't go in this direction but like starship troopers was uh, an early reference sure. and other films of, of that nature where it's just like um this these like these like you're not going to go into any depth about these bad guys they're just bad yeah and, um yeah starship troopers ended up not being with the direction they wanted to go because i think it was too kishy it was too like mm. um goofy and stuff like that but it's still pretty like second stage is still pretty goofy like they, yeah. they didn't go they they didn't make thankfully i'm glad that it's not super serious yeah. but um yeah they they kept it like kind of goofy in some respects so yeah um i think that was that was a strong choice on their part and when i've i've seen the gameplay there are instances where you are in basically in the dino arena with a bunch of your friends yeah. and it could take uh, quite some time before you know you're in the clear so yeah. to speak so that kind of brings that uh what you were referencing earlier in your composition palette the idea of like a, a jam session yeah. where there's long periods of time what did it look like composing or or did this fall on you or was it more on the the sound design side from the developers like when a big beat happens a dinosaur goes down or, or something like that what did that look like as far as your contribution so it that's something that um is one of my favorite things about as we were talking about one of my favorite things about writing for video games is the fact that the music will change based on mm. these different gameplay elements um in second extinction um the sound the audio uh, lead for that game was Dominic Vega, who you know from from Avalanche, New York, who then went to Hi, Dominic, <laughs> <laughs> who went to uh, to, to uh, the newer Swedish office to do this game. Um, uh, he he and I were talking about all these different systems that we might use as a few different like main ways that composers might make the music work in game. Um, you can change the, the instrumentation you can change like the arrangement of the instruments by adding and subtracting layers of, of music mm. you can also resequence the music so different sections of music play based on certain variables but when we got into uh, second extinction uh, we really started honing in on the gameplay um, and Dom would have to answer this question in full because I don't actually know what he did but I'm pretty sure because the game is sort of like there's either a couple dinosaurs trying to kill you or like a whole lot of dinosaurs trying to kill you. Like it's yeah. either those and then sometimes no dinosaurs trying to kill you. <laughs> but generally speaking, they probably are. You just don't haven't seen them yet. They yeah, right. <laughs> they're plotting. So they're plotting to kill you. Yeah. So we created um, 
there's 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 basically three suites of music in the game. Mm. Yeah. Um, one is the these little kind of gestural bits of music that play when you are actually I guess there's four. There's these little gestural bits of music that play when you um, are in a very low threat situation. Mm -hmm. Then there's this music that is like a couple dinosaurs are trying to get you. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the main combat music where like a bunch, like quite a few dinosaurs are trying to get you. And then there's the extraction music where you are um, trying to get out. And Mm. that's when the most dinosaurs are trying to get you. And so that's like, and you know, we had in my head, I kind of had like a system of, okay, I want to, like for the extraction stuff, I want to have like these kind of like the most epic moments, like maybe actually use some melodic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the like, there's not very much melodic material as the lower tension levels go, and there's a little bit more like rhythmic stuff. And the lowest tension levels have a lot of like moody pads. We recorded um, baritone saxophone and bass clarinet, and just made these like crazy. So it's like trying to think of like what does a dinosaur sound like? Right. right. It's like it's been done now quite a lot. Like having like dinosaur like so. It's like, well, let's just use like low woodwinds and just make like the screechiest, like craziest noises with these low woodwinds. So I had Derek, um, my studio partner, Derek, and my very good friend, also named Zach, who's a saxophonist, and they both uh, did a ton of Barry sax stuff and bass clarinet stuff. Um, nice. And it's just like these guttural sounds that we just kind of put into the computer and mess with. So cool. you're hearing primarily those on the lower tension stuff. So that's where I left off. Um, with Dom on that, but I'm not. He may have tweaked that, and um, he may have ended up doing some layering of it himself or something like that. Like you, you can do all sorts of different things with the individual stems of the audio, like of the music. So it's like if I give him just the drums or just the woodwinds or just the orchestral strings, you can kind of rearrange all those things mm. and kind of create new pieces of music out of them. Yeah. For Just Cause Four, we got super micro with it all, and that that soundtrack responds very dynamically to all the different things that are going on which is really fun but yeah there's just less going on in second extinction i guess that would warrant you don't want to you know you don't want to make things complicated first of all you don't want a mickey mouse i think that's really important yeah i mm-hmm. want the music to feel to feel directly related to what you're doing um because the point of the music is to create a mood um create a level of tension and energy and when you start mickey mousing it then it becomes part of like a musical sound design, which mm. is not really what, there's so much sound design in the game already, you don't need the music to perform that task. So if you talk about like little, little micro moods, you have to be very careful with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Cool. So, I feel like this is a question, there's a question that gets asked a lot that I'm not gonna ask you, which is how do you get into video games? Uh, <laughs> the question I do think is more compelling, and I think like, you know, being in the city for so long, I think it applies to both Jesse and I. Uh, we have a lot of friends that are musicians, mm-hmm. been musicians for a very long time, and uh, they are tremendous musicians, uh, but not necessarily going to be playing musicians for the rest of their life, but still have these amazing skills. And obviously, <laughs> you are. Uh, I mean, they can't just compose ice cream music. No. <laughs> so, uh, oh, you know, you were able yeah. to make the uh, transition uh, with a little skill, a little luck, uh, you know, knowing the right people, but also hard work. And, and I don't know, just like what is it about your experience that 
you could lend to somebody who has all this background in you know uh, playing, but not yeah. necessarily knowing what the next step is. Mm. That is a difficult question to answer because it's unique to everyone. Mm. Um, it's really, really, really difficult to make money in music. Um, this country does not support the arts the way a lot of countries in Europe do. So you can be um, you can be in a serious financial situation if you don't have that right for yourself. Um, and a lot of people uh, teach not because they want to, but because it's an easier, it's a way to make money. Um, I taught for a while and I was, I felt very bad for my students. I think they enjoyed their piano lessons, generally speaking, but one of the reasons they enjoyed them is because I didn't really enforce any practicing rules. And I was like, oh, you didn't practice? They're like, well, that's, that's really your problem. <laughs> mine. Like, I don't care. Like, I'll hang out with you for 45 minutes. But, um, I did get mad at them a few times and, um, I just felt when I was getting mad at them, I, I just remembered my piano teacher getting mad at me and like how terrible I felt. And I was like, I just, I don't have this in me. Like, I don't want to do this. Like my piano teacher was like an incredible piano teacher. And I'm, one, one of the reasons I'm a professional musician is because of him. Mm. Um, but he used a lot of like intense tactics in his teaching and, yeah. and I just didn't want to do that. And I feel like it's a very unfortunate that a lot of musicians who don't want to be teaching are teaching. Um, because and whether or not they're good at it or not, they just maybe they don't want to. Um, yeah. The balance you have, like the the balance, the way my um, professor in college always used to say is like people talk about other professions say time is money. When you're just starting out in music, or you're in a part, if you're transitioning from one way of making money to another in music or something like that, you have to kind of go the other way about it and think money is time. Like you need to find a way to make money mm. so that you have the time to do your 10,000 hours or whatever you need to do to get good at something uh, in order to make money at that thing that you want to be doing. So if you want to write film scores or video game scores, it is extremely difficult to put in your 10,000 hours and not do anything else and expect to make money doing mm. that. And I scored m multiple feature films for free, which was probably a bad idea. And a lot of people say, don't do that. But I'm really happy I did it because I got to meet a lot of really good um, people that way. And I got to hone my skill and do my 10,000 hours. And the way I generated income for myself at that time was elsewhere. And yeah. mm. whether it's teaching or um, I worked, I was a paralegal for my parents, which was, uh, that was something. Uh, <laughs> so I, my dad, I, my, my dad. I remember my dad came over me one time. He's like, Zach, you got to pretend that you're working. You have to pretend. Oh, no. <laughs> just pretend that you're working, because the other people here, they have to work. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was that oh, was. Wow. I think it was worse for them than it was for me. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my mom was happy she got to see me every day. But, yeah. Um, was, but you know, that was how you know and. Um, I thankfully was not burdened with debt and that was a really important mm. part of that whole thing too. I think if you're, if you are burdened with student loan debt, I just don't know what to say, like, because that balance becomes even harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's a, not only that, it's a source of incredible stress. I yeah. think our entire generation is like as a whole in a bad situation from student loan debt and I don't know what the solution is other I mean canceling it would be awesome yeah finding some way out of the hole because 
the entire generation seems to be unable to not the entire generation, but like many people seem to be unable to get out of a debt hole that they were put into before they even had a chance to get started. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do say what I'm saying um, with the knowledge that it's not easy. The more debt, student debt, the more debt of any kind you have, the harder it is to get this balance right. But yeah. if you can get your money time balanced the other way so that you have the time to do your 10,000 hours mm. um, at the thing that you want to be doing, that's sort of the what you have to kind of get right. Um, as a stu- studio, I don't know, YouTube Can Woo is constantly fighting that balance because it's very expensive to be a studio. Um, mm. And we take on a lot of projects that, um, you know, like this is an awesome thing to be doing in that we're generating income, but is it actually moving us into a place that we're going to be happy? We can't, if we only exclusively do this work, is this going to be, are we going to be happy when we're in our 40s and our 50s? Right. right. Um, and you know, how do we get that balance to continually to be aligned while generating the income we need to keep the lights on, but also invest in ourselves and things like that. So that's been, um, you know, that's not just a person to person thing. That's also as an organization, something that you have to think about and, uh, it's, it's very hard to do. So yeah, I, my, that's sort of the long winded advice is yeah, you, you need to be really good at something. Yeah. You need to know what that is. Yeah. Um, there's that, what do you call it, the hedgehog principle or something. There's people talk about in the business, like, what are you good at? I don't even know. I'm mixing up mixed <laughs> metaphors here. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, what are you good at? What does the world need? Mm. Like, all these things in, like, the center of this. I, I'm sorry that I actually don't know the reference that I'm trying to say right now because we talk about it all the time. <laughs> um, there's, like, this the center point of, like, Something that makes money, something you're good at, something that the world needs, something that mm. has demand. Right. That's like, if you find that center point for yourself, that's sort of like the goal. Right. Yeah. Well, if you don't know what that is, it took me a really long time to come to video games. Like, I didn't graduate college and be like, video games, that's what it is. Like, it took me having somebody basically being like, do you want to, here's a, do a demo on this video game before I thought about it as a concept. So, right. But you wouldn't have had the Would, skills if you knew right away anyway. Exactly. Yeah. It took me a while to develop. I had to do my 10,000 hours on film and theater and I had to go to school for six years on classical and I had to tour around the country with bands before all all those things aligned and I had to be in the studio with bands recording and learning how to record so I hadn't taken a single class on that like that was all taught by watching my friends um, some of whom I work with and some of whom I had been working with in the time but like all those things together that's what lent itself towards me finding that my thing that I like doing and that you know is I wouldn't even say that I'm established doing it. I have a couple projects, but like you know, I'm still just like everybody else. I'm still trying to find my path. So yeah, would uh, you say that you like when you were starting out, especially when you were doing the scores for free or yeah. as a collaboration? Would you say that you were in a position where you were like casting nets in all different directions, or did you have a path and you were just kept saying yes down that path, or like no, no do path. either of those make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, I was. I would I remember one of the one of the proudest moments my dad for of me. One of the proudest moments that my dad has been. One of the most proud times my dad has been of me uh-huh. <laughs> was when I said I would write anything for money. Oh. <laughs> he was. I was like, I don't know that. Whatever. If somebody right. pays me, I'll write. He was like, It's great, son. It's really yeah. Great. <laughs> right. But it was a moment of like, it was a moment of well, I need to. I don't. I knew that I didn't want to be in the so. 
going to music school is very different than going to like art college because yeah. music school is essentially a vocational school. Mm -hmm. But the vocation that they are training you to do doesn't actually exist. It only exists for like maybe a, a 200th, like a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the people mm -hmm. that are getting this training actually will be able to get a job. Um, and even going to a school, like I went to Manhattan School of Music, it's not the world's greatest conservatory, but it is one of the world's greatest conservatories. And um, it's uh, even many of my colleagues, you know, uh, even if they're really good, it's hard to get a job. Yeah. So it's, it's vocational school that doesn't give you the skills that you need. And a lot of people fall into that teaching thing, whether, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of teachers that don't want to be teachers that are teaching adjuncts or teaching in a way that they don't want to be teaching um, at music school. And I isolated that as something that I really did not want to be doing. Um, mm -hmm. And then being like, well, let me try this film thing. I had one connection. My, the dean of academics from school introduced me to a film director who needed, he was doing his first feature, and he had audited, ironically, a Stravinsky class that I was taking. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, the, the, the professor who was the dean um, recommended me to this director to do the music for his film, which is very nice of both of them for believing in me because not a good score. I mean, I did my best, but it was oh. like, you know, it was, it was yeah. my best first try. But, it was, you know, jumping into a feature is not the easiest thing if you've never done it before. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, so that path then basically nets started going there. And then at the same time as that happened, I was doing theater stuff and nets were going there and I ended up like, working on theatrical stuff and then I was playing in bands and like producing bands and right. like musical directing a little bit and like Nets going out there and then yeah so it was it wasn't I don't think I even honed it in until 2015 2016 yeah. when I was like you know most of the Nets did not lead to other Nets except for this one Net mm -hmm. and then Just Cause 3 came out and I was like, yeah, I, like I remember being in Soho and looking up at the Just Cause 3 billboard. I was like, wow, like I wrote some, some of the music for, yeah. this, <laughs> for this game. And, you know, this giant billboard is yeah. here. And, and this is like testament to my work, uh, even my, this, my small part of it. Um, and that was an interesting moment of being like, wow, that net was one that I kind of went. Net. It was a good net. It was a good net. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, Again, a thank you to a huge thank you to Jason Cantor for believing in me the same way that um, that my professor had believed in me before. Where like I had very little experience writing video games at that time, but um, Jason was nice enough to to work with me and help me through a lot of the the um, the learning experiences there. Yeah. And, so. and uh, tying it up with a bow, so to speak, it's uh, that. From what I infer uh, and what you're saying right now, I mean, it, that is a New York experience that you're mm -hmm. describing, too. Something oh, yeah. that, you know, it may not, it's unclear if that's going to exist in the future. I mean, certainly the Internet has changed the game in so many ways, but the idea of having a large city and then New York being among all the large cities, a city where networking and having all these nets and not knowing how it's going to come together really, you know, uh, 
it becomes a thing. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, is that why it's called networking? I've never <laughs> put that together before. <laughs> is it? You're like working network. all the I nets. Think, I think it's because you form a net with the people. But maybe I like yours but better. If you are forming a net, are you? Were well, you working a net? You're working. Yeah. A working net. on a You're net. It's really it's a textile nets. thing. Yeah. It is. Whoa. Yeah, I should know. Um, I'm on it. <laughs> I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work in it. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's it's the New York experience. What you're describing, yeah. and uh, we all have it to varying degrees. You know. I, yeah, I would say only in New York, um, because I, if I had known that I wanted to do, I think about this a lot. Like a lot of my friends, I have a lot of friends who have who have had great success in their lives, um, and they they all knew what they wanted to do when they were in school. Mm. And a much more intense like I knew I was very thankful that I knew what I wanted to do in terms of like I wanted to write music I knew that from before college and mm -hmm. that was I think that was nice because that's a tough one to come into when you're already an adult um, right but a lot of my friends came in they're like yeah I want to write this kind of music I want to be a film composer I want to write this kind of like music that's part of the downtown Manhattan scene or what used to be called the downtown scene and all these things like they knew it already and they've they've had a lot of success and they've gone to the places that um, they need to be to do that kind of stuff mm, and mm -hmm. I think really the only place in the United States that I could have done all those different things really is New York yeah like to be in the theater scene uh, again like not really but a little bit and yeah. like to do feature films and you know in my limited capacity that I did them um, independent films in New York is like a huge deal and yeah. um, and then playing in bands like being being here in the two, in the aughts was um, I mean everybody moved here to be part of the scene that mm -hmm. I yeah. was already here um, mm -hmm. and I was now I wasn't in a super successful band from that time period but I was aware of the scene and you know French Warner Belling the band that I toured with uh, has had quite a lot of success um, even if they're not like um, as big as MGMT. That's an interesting example because we right. produced MGMT uh, oh. at the studio. Well, not at the studio, but David produced MGMT's first EP. Oh, wow. Um, uh, back in 2005. Mm -hmm. So, well, they never achieved success as a band, but of course, they we are a part of their success in some way because one of my business partners um, has worked with them. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I think that's an only in New York thing, or at least in this country. And um, I always wonder why I never left, but like now it's uh, it becomes more clear when you start seeing things line up, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the video game industry, you know, is new in New York, and I think that's another only in New York thing. Is I'm not sure if if this if, if Avalanche had decided to move to a city with more composers that were um, available to, like, not to say that there aren't a lot of composers in New York that could write music for video games, but that is just there are less I would say than there are in LA just there's just less um, less than market themselves yeah. as doing that right yes absolutely yeah. um, so I think that might have been an only New York thing too and I know that Avalanche had a push to be local in New York um, at that time period especially like, we want to be a New York company yeah and I think that was a huge uh, win for, for me and for you too Kamuda. yeah we are we're here we're New York <laughs> <laughs> um, so so yeah absolutely and, well, yeah. well uh, the squirrels are circling. Yeah, I know what's sure happening. Are. We should, we should I, probably... They're so cute, but they're it's like 
Yeah. They are getting closer and closer. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up before a third extinction happens. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to anger the squirrels. No, yeah. don't want to go the way of the nut. Yeah, but but thank you all for coming up to Queens. Um, even though we've been talking about Brooklyn a lot, like I, I live in Queens. Yeah. Yeah, we're um, currently I'm, in Astoria. Yeah, we're yeah yeah we're in Astoria Park, and uh, yeah, I mean it was great to be able to talk to a resident of the area while we're walking through here. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, some weeks we talk less about what we do other weeks we talk more you know but it yeah i mean it, it's it's just great to be able to have new york voices on and you know to be able to talk about what their lives are and you know you're a local of the coast of queens absolutely yeah there i am coastal for 11 years yeah it's been uh, so and you've in one of my favorite places in the neighborhood right here at the north end of astoria park yeah it's a beautiful yeah. view in the train trestle and great restaurants and everything like that. So. Yeah, we got pretty fortunate. The train only came by once. Yeah. So yeah. We, uh, we managed to escape it. But yeah, uh, yeah. thanks so much, man. Thank yeah, you thanks for being here with us. My pleasure. Well, that's all we got for this week. Thanks again so much to Zach Abramson for joining us. It was really wonderful getting a chance to talk to him and learn a little bit more about him. Yeah, we had a great time and we, we thought it was great to talk with Zach and we hope you all enjoyed listening to our talk. And if you did enjoy, please share it or like it or subscribe it or do all the stuff. Click all the buttons. We would really appreciate that, too. Thanks so much. Until next week, take care. Bye. Bye.